Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast, where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, Richard Lummis and I conclude a two-part look at leadership lessons from President Woodrow Wilson. In this episode, we focus on his presidency, his illness, and his death. I know you will enjoy it. Hello, this is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're going to continue our discussion of Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president, with uh, his career as president and uh, in his post brief post-presidential career. Um, Tom, uh, we had already briefly discussed the new freedom agenda that was the platform that he ran on in the 1912 election, but do you want to give us a few more details about it? Sure, Richard. And um, this was just an explosion of uh, or not an explosion, a synthesis of new ideas that have been percolating in American political thought for quite some time. But uh, just as um, Franklin Roosevelt had the New Deal, um, Wilson had the New Freedom Agenda. And the New Freedom Agenda really focused on several different areas um, that uh, influenced American political thought literally to this day, Uh, In the last podcast, we spoke about the tariff and how the majority of U.S. uh, revenue was generated by the tariff uh, prior to the uh, enactment of the uh, personal tax code um, and the graduated income tax replaced that. So we actually had a positive uh, force for taxation, and we uh, had a uh, constitutional amendment, which allowed a personal income tax. So that was sort of number one. Number two, and once again, one that resonates literally to this day, is the creation of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, in a many prior podcast, we talked about the first and second national banks of the United States, and there was no national banking system. Uh, in another podcast, we talked about the financial panic of 1907 and how this uh, uh led to many in New York and other uh, leaders in the financial industry thinking that we needed to have um, strong financial leadership, whether it be from the banks uh, or from the government. But this actually had been under discussion for probably since the 1890s. And this was a key populist plank, was to have a strong Federal Reserve System that could deliver credit uh, in the face of uh, economic downturn. The economic downturn of uh, the Panic of uh, 1893, the Panic of 1907, uh, literally farmers in wagons got together to talk about these concepts, uh, and they were many of the populists 
who uh, led the nominate led to the nomination of William Jennings Bryan um, as far back as 1896. So this these concepts have been uh, going along, and the um, Federal Reserve was uh, created uh, under or the Federal Reserve System was created under Wilson, and the controlling interest was through uh, presidential appointment to the central board, which would oversee it. But the regional banks or the banks held power through regional Federal Reserve banks um, across the country, and I think there are 12 regional banks. So that was a system, and anyone who follows economics today uh, knows the Fed is still in the news. Uh, Next was antitrust legislation. And, of course, we had the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, but Wilson was able to bring forward additional legislation, which created the Federal Trade Commission, and um, the which and the bill was the the Clayton Act, and um, this was supported both by business and labor to the point where Sam, Samuel Gompers, the head then head of the AFL, said that uh, the Clayton Act was labor's Magna Carta. So this was a significant piece of legislation, both with uh, labor and agriculture. There were uh, significant uh, advances by Wilson to bring labor in as part of the discussion. There had been several very deadly uh, labor disputes in the western part of the United States, usually around mining and coal, um, particularly in Colorado, and the the administration really wanted to move to give labor a a bigger voice. Uh, Another key area was in immigration. And I think you and I have probably joked over I don't know how many podcasts of the the more we talk about immigration uh, or there is no new subject around immigration. It started in the 1820s and then in the 1840s. We had a brief respite by something called the Civil War, but then it started right back up after that. And uh, it continued to the 1890s. And here in the Wilson administration, they actually cut back on immigration, particularly from Southern Europe. So all I can say is I'm glad my grandfather got in in the 1890s. Um, but uh, I just either I knew and forgot or never really understood uh, the topic of immigration has been at the forefront of American political thought, literally for the life of the country. So, um, And then the final point was judicial appointments in and here, uh, Wilson had three appointments to the Supreme Court, but I want to focus on Louis Brandeis uh, because it's difficult for me to understand now not so much how divisive this appointment was, but he was the first Jew, Jewish yeah. person on the Supreme Court. And what a revolution that was and, and a change that was. And that uh, I'm not sure anti-Semitism is the right word, Maybe it is, um, but Jews were just not allowed to that level of of government at that point. He was a key advisor of Wilson, so that was uh, wasn't that he just kind of came out of the blue, but th- he has to be acknowledged for that. And that appointment uh, obviously resonated for the next twenty years as Brandeis stayed on the court. Well, I'm not yeah, and I'm not sure anti-Semitism is quite right. I think nativism is closer. Um, and it influenced a lot of Wilson's thought. Um, 
much of which was not explicitly racist or anti-Semitic, but um, but I think a more nativist would be a, a better quote. He's several times he's uh, he's quoted as despising hyphenated Americans, um, and that you know we need to get rid of the hyphenated American type thing. Um, but yeah, I think he does deserve credit for it, um, which is good because there are a lot of other things he gets blamed for. So that really takes us to race relations, and and you, in the prior podcast you alluded to. Um, the revisionist views of Wilson, uh, somewhat based upon his writings, but certainly based upon some of his actions. So I guess now would be a good time to, to talk about race relations, race relations in 1912, 1914, 1916, race relations perhaps today. And are we uh, overlaying our culture today over a different time or, and, or should we be doing that? Well, I, I think to a certain extent, we, you need to understand the the context in which the beliefs come up, but they're still quite offensive. Um, yeah, we, we discussed his, his history of the United States and how it uh, followed basically the lost cause narrative of the, of the Civil War or the War of Northern Aggression. Um, and, um, and then he did in his writings... Um, Describe the KKK in quite um, favorable terms. Um, he wrote about uh, Reconstruction placing uh, Southern whites under the intolerable burden of government sustained by the votes of ignorant Negroes. He said that the uh, Klan was uh, organized to protect the South from some of the ugliest hazards of a time of revolution. Um, Famously, he he screened D.W. Griffith's uh, film *The Birth of a Nation* with its I don't know I don't know how many of you have seen it, but it's the racial stereotypes are astonishing. Um, and then um, one thing that uh, I think surprised both him and the Southerners in his cabinet was how integrated the federal workforce was. Uh, Grant, of course, started the integration of the of the federal workforce. And at the turn of the century, something like 10% of the federal uh, workforce was African-American. Um, and, and Washington, D.C. Was, was relatively unsegregated, although it, I think they, they still had uh, significant segregation. But among other things, um, Wilson allowed his cabinet members to uh, resegregate the federal government in their departments if they chose to. Um, some people uh, use this to cast the blame on the cabinet members and say that Wilson was uh, not really responsible for resegregating the federal government. But I think it's pretty clear that um, he, he favored it. Um, at one point, he, um, he threw out W.E.B. Du Bois from his office. Um, and uh, a transcript of the meeting reveals that he'd argued that segregation is not humiliating but a benefit and ought to be so regarded by you gentlemen. Um, so I, I think um, this is definitely one of the, the major stains on his career. Um, famously, of course, in his first career, or in his first term, uh, when he was running for re-election, his, his slogan was that he kept us out of war. His career in foreign affairs, they were 
he was one of those presidents who uh, had no interest in it or experience in it uh, before he was elected. Um, he favored uh, American intervention under the Monroe Doctrine. Um, they occupied the Dominican Republic, uh, invaded Haiti, uh, Cuba, Panama, and Honduras. <laughs> Just sort of routine stuff. And then, of course, and of course, you have the the Mexican Revolution, where um, <laughs> Pershing and U.S. forces were sent into uh, sent into northern Mexico. Uh, we also occupied the Mexican city of Veracruz. Um, people like to forget about that one too. Um, but he he did attempt to uh, to remain neutral in World War One. Um, he offered to uh, mediate the conflict, but of course the the Europeans were not interested in it at that point. Um, he claimed to be neutral, but of course the United States uh, financed the the Allied powers uh, much more, and trade with Germany was blocked by the uh, British blockade. So effectively, we uh, got involved in and favored the uh, the Allies. And that's one of the reasons that the Germans launched uh, unrestricted submarine warfare, and uh, which, of course, eventually led us into war. Um, but so that was one of his his major uh, themes for re-election was was on foreign affairs. So, do you want to talk about that uh, that election? In the prior podcast, I spoke about the Wilson biographical movie, which came out in the nineteen forties that have heavily influenced my view of Wilson up until uh, the time I started studying him a little bit more in depth. And a key part of that was this election and that phrase, he kept us out of war. And what struck me about the movie was his ambivalence about the Democratic Party using that phrase, because in the movie, he seemed to think we were going to go to war at some point. Um, I'm not sure that was historically accurate, but perhaps there's something to that. And I've always wondered if he believed that he kept us out of war, was he being disingenuous uh, to the American people, and particularly the American farm boys who went to to Europe? Um, And if he um, really did believe that, was it an incredible level of naivete to think that the United States could stay out of a war, that war, certainly by late 1915 and early into 1916 during the election campaign. And I don't know the answer to either one of those, but that part of that movie always uh, struck me. And in in rereading and researching for this podcast, it it brought that up again. The um, Republicans nominated Charles Evans Hughes, uh, as their candidate, hoping to unite both the progressive and uh, uh, mainstream wings of the GOP party. What I had not fully appreciated, Richard, was how contested the election was. And that uh, Wilson uh, uh, did not concede, although he he, uh, he was behind for several days until Western states came in. Uh, given the transportation and communication of the era, perhaps not too surprising. Nevertheless, uh, I was not aware of that. Uh, I don't think that really has any precedent for what we've gone through in the past year, but uh, here we have an example of a contested election and election swinging. Uh, you know, perhaps there was uh, 
cemetery voting? Perhaps not. But um, uh, well, the Cal- the California uh, vote was decided by less than four thousand right. votes. So there are definitely some similarities. Um, and as you pointed out, it took several days. So he's um, elected, reelected, and uh, then sort of all hell breaks loose. Uh, um, the uh, you want to take us maybe towards the move towards war and the declaration. They had initially started with unrestricted submarine warfare. Then they uh, limited it um, in an attempt to keep the United States neutral. But then they reinitiated it in January of 1917 um, as part of their uh, last-ditch effort, basically, to to break the Allies prior to U.S. entrance, um, if that were to happen. Um, the, the real... Um, the Zimmerman telegram apparently uh, was was the straw that broke the camel's back, proverbially. But that was, I mean, which was fascinating because it was a, a secret diplomatic cable that Germany was attempting to uh, get Mexico to declare war on the United States if the United States uh, joined in World War One, in exchange for which they would get the southwestern United States back after the German victory. The way it came into our hands was apparently through British Secret Service because all of the submarine cables uh, at the time went through London. And so the British, of course, tapped them. And the Germans didn't really think about that, Um, which kind of remarkable, but one of those things. But I think the combination indicated um, that Germany Germany basically lost the public relations war at that point. and and so the U.S. went ahead and declared war in, in April of 1917 uh, with, with a strong bipartisan majority. I wanted to maybe explore the uh, Germany's decision and their decision-making calculus to re-engage in unrestricted submarine warfare. Uh, do you really think that they actually made a decision that they could limit or damage the United Kingdom and the Allies specifically before the United States could ramp up and make a war effort. Uh, was was the German high command that forward thinking? Part of the decision, of course, was uh, was practical. Um, the British were getting much better with uh, the destroyer system, and um, they were using uh, disguised uh, or warships disguised as merchant marine vessels to uh, sink submarines. So uh, part of it was simply a tactical calculus that they were losing too many submarines the other way, and um, the submarines could no longer surface and, and all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's probably a fair point, that the, the German high command made a lot of really poor decisions throughout the war, and this was likely just one of a series. And then the other thing around the Zimmerman telegram, um, you're absolutely correct. The, the Brits tapped the cable— uh, but I guess a couple of other points I wanted, maybe three other points I wanted to raise. Number one, uh, they weren't sending uncoded messages that the British had found or discovered a German naval code book in Iran and had st- stolen it and sent it back to London, not knowing its value or how it would be used. And so that that's how they were able to break the code. But it wasn't simply that they decoded the message, they had to get the physical telegram to prove to the United States. And after the telegram got to Mexico, um, it was uh, stolen. Um, 
and presented to the United States. That I know it was stolen, but I don't know any more of the story than that. But the other thing, though, Richard, was what I had really un, not appreciated the enmity between the United States and Mexico at that point, where Germany thought that Mexico would be even interested. Certainly knew about Pancho Villa, the raid into uh, Lincoln, New Mexico, or not Lincoln, but into New Mexico, um, and the attack or the incursion by U.S. troops into uh, uh try to punish Mexico for that. But it was much broader than that. And the Veracruz uh, Veracruz, uh, invasion, I think, was as bad a public relations stain between Mexico and the U.S. as as anything else. And so Mexico could plausibly have been poised to accept those sorts of conditions, or at least in the Germans' minds, because of the just terrible relations between the United States and Mexico at that point in time. The situation in Mexico was rather fluid. Um, Carranza, I think, was president at the time. Um, but, you know, there were there were still a number of factions. Um, but I, I think the Veracruz invasion and, uh, and occupation was uh, was probably the worst. I think the the uh, chase of Pancho Villa was uh, almost a non-event as far as Mexico City was concerned. But the uh, the loss of the port of Veracruz was something that was quite serious. So that takes us to uh, America comes into the war. And uh, the American army at that time was a professional army, but quite small. They had to gear up with a, a selective service program and volunteers train the army and get them to Europe, which took uh, probably a good year, maybe 15 or, or even 18 months, so that the, the bulk of the American troops uh, did not start arriving until the summer of 1918 and maybe even until October of 1918. And the war, of course, ended November 11, uh, 1918. So um, I'm not sure America turned the tide, but I think perhaps Germany saw that uh, they couldn't staunch the the flow of American troops and it was going that way. Uh, The other thing, though, was Wilson put on a quite aggressive publicity campaign during the the war itself uh, to indicate that he wanted some sort of fair peace. It was built around the 14 points. One of those points, of course, was the League of Nations that will talk about separately. The other point was uh, that resonated as much was self-determination. And he he promised self-determination for the peoples of Europe. And this gave great uh, comfort, I think, to the Germans who I think even when they uh, surrendered, said their surrender was based upon the 14 points. And so um, what's always struck me about this was, uh, I'm not sure it's the... uh, the naive U.S. foreign policy view. I don't know if it is a, a global view that um, kind of globalism at its earliest uh, promotion, but it was a view that was not widely accepted literally anywhere else other than perhaps Woodrow Wilson and Colonel Edward House's mind. So um, this led to the peace, and then this led to Versailles and the League of Nations. And I think we both see a lot of leadership failures at this point. So you want to talk a little bit about uh, Versailles and the League of Nations? Yeah, I also want to address the, one of the other 14 points, which was the freedom of navigation, which was I think was one of the key reasons that uh, Germany uh, 
entered into the armistice originally, uh, they were they were starving uh, because of the blockade uh, by the British, and they assumed that during the armist that after the armistice the British blockade would be eased. The British refused, and Wilson didn't press them on it, and. The Germans, of course, were outraged. Um, I think there was always the view in Europe that the 14 points represented American uh, moralism and um, idealism and and hypocrisy. And when Wilson started trading some of them off immediately, um, I think that only made it worse. Um, the other problem Wilson well Wilson had so many fail, leadership failures here it's it's remarkable uh, basically he wanted to handle all of the negotiations himself um, dealing with uh, Clemenceau and Lord George and he was just over his head in negotiating with those two um, in addition um, he was so focused on the 14 points that once they had agreed sure we'll we'll basis on the 14 points and uh yeah we'll we'll vote for league of nations then he had no uh leverage to um to argue and basically one of the the books said that uh once they'd paid his price now he had to pay theirs and the result was the peace of versailles which was uh, you know just excessively punitive um i think part of what drove this was wilson was almost certainly the most popular man in the world at this point. Um, he, he arrived in, in France and was greeted by rapturous crowds and uh, was treated as the savior of civilization. And I think it may well have gone to his head a bit. Um, and I think we also have to question uh, his, uh, his physical health at this point too. The, um, the strain definitely caused a, a, a stroke later on, but he may well have been um, suffering from a series of strokes or certainly decreased blood supply to the brain at this point. And um, that, that may well have affected his decision-making. And in the absence of a strong group of delegates to, to help him out, I think that only exacerbated the problem. So there were several leadership points uh, around the war and, more importantly, the peace. And you you hit on the last one or one of them on your last remarks, Richard, where that's health. And health is a critical leadership issue. We talked about that in a prior podcast. It's certainly going to become more prominent. Um, but diminished capacity, uh, we may see that again under Franklin Roosevelt. We get to his series. But um, that's a critical issue is I've always wondered, was the failure of the peace inevitable because World War I was so catastrophic and, more importantly, so different than any other war which preceded at least since ancient times? This was total war. This was war against civilians. This was a mechanized war. This was a war of casualties at a scale at that point was unknown, and it was a long four-year slog. And was it simply inevitable 
that the participants were going to Hello, everyone. To this is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. They could. Also, and check out the uh, article. The casualty rate was so podcast high. is uh, uh, based on in the show notes. Square inch of Please join us again for our next episode where uh, Richard Lummis and I will take another look they at could, leadership. Uh, 12 O'Clock High, a podcast is, on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Of a piece which was not punitive? The Germans deliberately destroyed everything in northern France as they retreated um, in the final offensive in 1918. And uh, that justifiably enraged the French. Um, In addition, I think many historians feel that the failure to utterly destroy the German army and occupy Berlin was, uh, was an error. Um, I'm not sure that was ever a feasible goal, uh, given the bloodletting that had gone on. Um, certainly the only army capable of doing it at the time was the American one. And, um, you know, when you, when you read, uh, histories of the period, the, uh, political power of German Americans at the time was not insignificant. And I'm not at all sure that it was, it was ever a realistic option but I think the fact the war sort of petered out with an armistice uh, meant that uh, Germany would argue that they were not defeated in the field subsequently. And uh, I think that was one of the huge mistakes. Um, there are a couple of other things about the war that, um, and, and Wilson's role in it that, that I'd like to touch on, which were um, his, his creation of a, a propaganda office, uh, the Committee on Public Information, um, the federal government budget went from $1 billion in 1916 to $19 billion in three years. Um, the, uh, the government basically took over manufacturing. Uh, they introduced daylight savings time and rationed fuel supplies. Um, the, I, think, I think we see here Wilson's love with the strong executive and that he just saw an opportunity and grabbed it with both hands. Um, and then finally, uh, one of the things that I think is another uh, stain on his record were the uh, the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918, which essentially criminalized political dissent in the United States. Um, Eugene Debs, the former presidential candidate who uh, protested against the draft, was, uh, was jailed for sedition for a number of years. Um, so uh, basically all anti-war groups were, uh, were targeted, and, and many of them were, were in prison. Uh, so we achieved so. peace. Uh, the Germans signed the Treaty of Versailles, um, and Wilson returns to the United States. And he has to try and sell the League of Nations to a uh, probably at that point a reluctant Congress. I don't think they were an open revolt against him yet. But uh, this is where... Either uh, health issues, prickliness, or other character traits, or perhaps a combination of all, I thought really led directly to his downfall. As on the prickly side, he he refused all entries. He had not included uh, congressional representatives as part of his delegation. He had certainly not included people across the aisle as part of a bipartisan team. I think by this point he had jettisoned Colonel House. Uh, one of his top fixers uh, as a key advisor, and 
basically uh, wanted to dictate to the U.S. Congress the terms of the peace treaty. This is not the first um, appearance of Henry Cabot Lodge in the life of Woodrow Wilson, and I hope someone has or someone will write a book about the intersections of them uh, from basically their college days forward, because one of the early papers uh, Wilson wrote at Princeton as an undergraduate was edited by uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, who was then a senator from Massachusetts at uh, in 1918. And uh, I don't think Lodge was uh, completely against the treaty uh, when Wilson returned, but shortly thereafter, he led the uh, the fight against it. And, and here we saw great and substantive leadership failures uh, by Wilson. That, of course, led to a barnstorming, essentially, whistle-stop tour where he tried to use the bully pulpit to drum up support for his treaty. Uh, and this is where uh, the final health calamity, or the next health calamity, perhaps, where uh, he was completely incapacitated by a stroke. But uh, do you think, Richard, that there was even the possibility the league could have been approved or one if, if Wilson had handled it differently or two was in his character. And at that point in his life, he couldn't handle it differently. I think the question of whether the treaty could have ever been approved is, is an open one. Um, Lodge was, as you pointed out, not totally against it at the beginning, but on the other hand, the the charter of the league as originally written appeared to take the decision to go to war away from the U.S. Congress, and that was a non-starter. Um, Wilson was one of his less attractive uh, characteristics was his deliberate evasions um, and vagueness about things, which uh, in this case he continually tried to slide past the issue of, of sovereignty and whether the United States would actually be required to go to war on behalf of the League if the League voted to, uh, to use military force. Without the use of military force in an international army, um, the League sort of you know, disintegrated into an idealistic uh, debating club. Um, and Wilson knew that, but he also knew that he, if he tried to create the system that he really wanted, uh, Congress would never go along. The other things we see in this this fight were um, Wilson's contempt for his opponents and his belief that anyone who opposed him was not just uh, mistaken but uh, but evil. Uh, we also see a level of secrecy and verging on paranoia. Um, I think some of this is due to his health. Some of this is due to the people around him. Um, his first wife had died in 1914, and he remarried in 1915, I believe, a woman named Edith Galt, who was very protective of him. Uh, in addition, his uh, chief of staff and personal secretary was a man named uh, Joseph Tumulty. And together with his physician, uh, Dr. Grayson, they basically uh, formed a group that accepted no advice from others. Um, and, of course, when you're trying to make a negotiation with with a group of people as prickly as U.S. senators tend to be, um, then uh, I, I think this this closed group was, was a terrible miscalculation. Um, but 
you know, was it was it ever an option for him to reach out to the other side? Um, we've certainly seen no evidence of that at any earlier point in his career. So, Richard, he has a massive stroke and uh, is incapacitated. Um, where does that uh, kind of lead us to for the rest of his presidency? Well, depending on who you believe, um, basically, Edith Wilson has been described as the first female president of the United States. Um, with Grayson and Tumulty, she, and and of course, with Wilson's active uh, help, they deliberately concealed the extent of his illness um, and his incapacity and the fact that he was nearly blind. Um, but... Um, you know, basically, it uh, it just eliminated his ability to do much of anything for the remainder of his term. Um, oddly enough, he uh, after after his term ended, he appears to have wanted to run for president again, um, which is uh, just delusional given the state of his health. Um, and and an indication to me that his mental incapacity was was quite severe. So we've talked a lot about some of the leadership lessons uh, from Wilson, and for the business leader who might be listening to this podcast, I wonder if we might maybe conclude with uh, how Wilson uh, or studying Wilson can provide some lessons uh, learned. He. Um, the tumultuousness of his times, I don't think, can be discounted. Uh, even in the U.S. domestic sphere, in his first two years or first couple of three years of his first term, uh, they got a lot done and lots of reforms. But I, I think he will always be uh, the ghost of Versailles, always uh, cast long over him. He uh, now the um, racial component of his life has much come to the fore. And even at Princeton, he is uh, uh, not as honored as uh, he, he once was. The, um, I guess, Richard, the, the health as a critical leadership issue is, is the one key lesson I had not thought of before um, as much as, as I do now, uh, really because uh, his health issue started long before his presidency in a very dramatic manner that I was not aware of and that it really changed his person or perhaps changed his personality at way back at Princeton. Um, so that those sorts of things matter much more. Uh, your analysis of his post Versailles time where he uh, abandoned having a wider or even some circle of advisors, Colonel House being the most prominent, to basically have a group of yes men uh, did not serve him at all. And I think that, that tells us that yeah. leaders must have people certainly they can trust, but people that they allow to to tell them the truth. The um, The other thing, though, that struck me, if I look back to his early career, and we saw this more prominently with Theodore Roosevelt was uh, Wilson was a voracious learner. He, he did write, he did communicate. He gave wonderful lectures when he was a professor at Princeton, but the act of studying and writing books demonstrates to me just a, a level of, of 
curiosity that I think served him certainly into his presidency of Princeton uh, and and beyond. Uh, perhaps he did. He is the Peter Principle, uh, at least after the entry into the war. But once again, we see this this level of curiosity of uh, a president who probably is not one of the greatest ones, but certainly is seen as above average. Well, I think that will depend on uh, greatest. Um, he's certainly one of the most consequential. Um, the uh, the U.S. entry into World War One and the uh, and especially the um, the financial uh, aid that the United States gave the Allies, and of course, subsequently demanded that they pay it all back, which basically bankrupted Great Britain. Um, although they didn't realize it for another thirty years, uh, but um, it, it, he really, in many ways, you know, the invasion of Mexico uh, poisoned uh, relations with Mexico to this day. Um, the emphasis on morality and against uh, militarism has been a recurring strain in American politics, but he really brought it to the forefront and made it respectable. Um, even Henry Kissinger believes that, that uh, Wilson was uh, – Wilsonianism basically still drives American foreign policy today, which is kind of remarkable for a man who uh, had no experience in it before he uh, became president. Um, but and I, I, his view of the strong executive followed up on on Teddy Roosevelt, of course. But I think it was even uh, more striking the extent to which he was happy to exercise presidential power outside of normal constitutional and statutory limits. Um, so I, I think he's 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 dislikable in many ways. Um, his is uh, racism, um, if you want to call it that, uh, is certainly one of the things that most people know about him today. And I don't think it's his most consequential flaw, but it's certainly one. Um, so I think, I think he, in many respects, he was, he's one of our most consequential presidents. Well, I think that's a great way to, uh, to end this uh, two-part podcast series on Woodrow Wilson, Richard. Well, thank you. And um, I hope you all enjoyed listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for another episode of 12 O'Clock High. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. Also, check out the uh, article that the podcast is uh, uh, based upon in the show notes. Please join us again for our next episode where uh, Richard Lummis and I will take another look at leadership. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.